What Mad Universe is part of the Tokyo Beat Podcast Network. Content warning, misogyny, pregnancy, eugenics, class oppression, and flattening of complex issues. Action! Excitement! Horror! Romance! Thrills and chills! Swords and sorcery! Rockets and ray guns! A dizzying panoply of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination! What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. with us that a male child shall have one more side than his father, so that each generation shall rise, as a rule, one step in the scale of development and nobility. Thus the son of a square is a pentagon, the son of a pentagon a hexagon, and so on. The birth of a true equilateral triangle from isosceles parents is a subject of rejoicing in our country for many furlongs around. After a strict examination conducted by the Sanitary and Social Board, the infant, if certified as regular, is with solemn ceremonial admitted into the class of equilaterals. He is then immediately taken from his proud yet sorrowing parents and adopted by some childless equilateral who is bound by oath never to permit the child henceforth to enter his former home or so much as look upon his relations again, for fear lest the freshly developed organism may, by force of unconscious imitation, fall back into his hereditary level. The occasional emergence of an equilateral from the ranks of his serf-born ancestors is welcomed not only by the poor serfs themselves as a gleam of light and hope shed upon the monotonous squalor of their existence, but also by the aristocracy at large. For all the higher classes are well aware that these rare phenomena, while they do little or nothing to vulgarize their own privileges, serve as a most useful barrier against revolution from below. Flatland, A Romance of Many Dimensions, 1884, by Edwin Abbott Abbott. Hi, welcome to What Mad Universe. Uh, I'm your host, Philip Rice, and with me as always is Adam Prosser. Hello all. And today we're uh, talking about a Victorian satire uh, taking place in, well, a flat land uh, called Flatland. Uh, uh, We'll talk more about that after this. Today's show is brought to you by Epos Gaming Audio. With a comprehensive lineup of both wired and wireless headsets, gaming amplifiers, microphones, and webcams, Epos has everything you need to experience the power of audio. Like their H6 Pro lineup, which features two versions, an open or closed headset, the closed headset allows you to tap into exceptionally detailed audio and seals out ambient noise, while the open version delivers natural high-fidelity audio with an incredible soundstage. Both headsets include a magnetic, detachable microphone and a sleek design that has no wild RGB configurations, just good design. Listeners can save by visiting www.eposaudio.com gaming and entering code 
epostfriend15 at checkout to save 15%. In a world of podcasts, only three men are willing. What, well, dude, what are you doing, James? You told me to do the, the promo for the podcast, right? That's what we're yeah, doing. Yeah, but I mean, you know, we could actually tell people about what we are. I mean, we're the Famicast. We're a bi-weekly show. We talk about Nintendo and games in Japan. Uh, I'm Danny, and uh, that was James. And we got another guy. What? Who are you again? I, I'm a, I'm the, I'm the saboteur. I'm the the henchman. I'm the, the interloper. That's uh that's Ty. He is our anime trash expert. <laughs> Digs around in some UFO catchers for check us out. We're in Japan. We like Nintendo most of the time. The Famicast only on the Tokyo Beat Network. Okay, so um, where where to start on this one? Um, well, it's a very interesting book. It's a it's really more of a thought experiment than a book in some ways. Um, it's literally just about what life would be like in a two-dimensional reality. And it was written, as you say, by in a, the, the author was a Victorian. He was actually a um, uh, the, theologian. I don't think it was... Uh, yeah, theologian. He wasn't a priest, I guess, but he was... Yeah, he studied... Uh, no, he was, a, he was an Anglican priest. Oh, okay. There you go. Um, and... Um, but also a mathematician, so yep. um, that's all uh, factored in. And a in. schoolmaster. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it's actually really interesting because um, from what I've seen, there was definitely um, a popularity of sort of mathematical fables. I don't want to say popularity. I'm not going to say like they were ravingly popular, but like um, uh, uh, Lewis Carroll also wrote some uh, some stories and little, little like uh, – little uh vignettes i guess stories you'd call them uh and riddles that were mathematically based i have a book of all of his writings and he did a lot of that and i mean even the fact that um like alice's uh through the looking glass is based on chess problems you know uh there was definitely sort of this uh this uh uh thing among the upper classes i think where you know they would try to to make make learning fun in that particular way, and I think that that's what fed into this story personally, from what I can tell. Um, but yeah, it's it's an attempt to sort of uh, deal with like to really get you to think about um, the existence of how dimensions would impact your your life and how they how they affect our reality, basically. Because like, what would it be like if you were in two dimensions? Um, like you would, you would only be able to see in one dimension, like we're in three dimensions, but we see in two dimensions, right? Yeah. So yeah, that, that's, um, I, I had, I had known about this book for a while. It's like referenced in a lot of, um, uh, it's popular in nerdy circles. So I guess, um, uh, writers like to slip in references. There's, I mean, there's references to everything in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, but that it appears in there as well. Um, but Alan Moore also uh, referenced it even earlier in his career in 1963. Um, the uh, the Hypernaut, was that the character? Yeah, the Hypernaut, yeah. Yeah. 1963 was like a Marvel, like a 60s Marvel pastiche that he did in the 90s. Um, one of the characters has uh, the portal to Flatland in his, uh, um, in his Fortress of Solitude situation. Space right. station, I think it was. And that whole story is him fighting a four dimensional entity because and it shows how like this this being from four dimensions could like 
reach around walls and could just uh and and only appear and, and it, it sort of looks like a bit of an onion almost like it's got re- like uh circles floating unattached to each other because only parts of it are passing through the third dimension but it's coming from the fourth dimension and of course comics are un- unusually uh well uh conceived uh it's a unusually good medium for dealing with this kind of thing um because he can uh, reach around panels and stuff. Right, exactly. Like it's it's he's three dimensional, but he's living in a two dimensional world being portrayed by uh, the comic page. Um, and yeah, that's that's the kind of thing that this book was doing in eighteen eighty four or whatever the year was. Um, yeah. So uh, to be clear, this isn't um, universes. This isn't like parallel universes. This is dimensions within our own universe. So there's um, it. it the book directly deals with um, the third dimension, space land, with uh, flat land, two dimensions, um, or, sorry, yeah, two dimensions, um, one dimension, uh, which is line land, and no dimensions, which is point land. Right, yeah, he, t- he talks about <laughs> going all the way down to having zero dimensions whatsoever, uh, with point land being just a single entity that literally can't conceive of anything outside of itself because there are no other dimensions yeah when they were talking to it um it it sort of paused and said oh i've in i've thought things that i didn't think what i was thinking just to um yeah uh please further please myself and entertain myself isn't that marvelous (laughs) yeah i had i heard another uh, uh uh my 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 mind is talking to itself if you try to talk to it basically um yeah uh, oh, uh, there's also uh, implication that the fourth dimension exists, and maybe even higher than that. Um, right. Just, um, uh, we'll get into more story stuff for what there is of that later. But uh, when the square is talking to the sphere, um, and he says, you've opened my mind, now show me the, the fourth dimension. And the sphere's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> that's, yeah. that's silly. There's no and, fourth and dimension, yeah. Yeah, and it's implied that it's it's a similar situation where he's just rejecting it out of hand the way um, people in um, uh, Flatland reject the idea of a third dimension. Yeah, from from what I understand, Edwin Abbott, who was Edwin Abbott Abbott actually was his name, um, who was the uh, the the writer of this book. Um, he was a theologian, but he was a liberal theologian for the time, and apparently he um, he he was always trying to sort of. Uh, you know, he he embraced open-mindedness, which is kind of the theme of the book. It's it's about how you know it's dimensional as an as a as a metaphor for being open-minded, and and the fact that it's kind of this uh, mind-blowing concept <laughs> to some degree um, is reflective of that. I would say, like it's it's meant to make you think and to reflect on how the characters don't want to have their minds opened or do in a few cases. Um, Right, like that's yeah, that's yeah. definitely intentional, right? Yes, uh, and it's also, of course, a satire of the Victorian class system. Right. No, oh, that's that's very, very, very much in place. Which is funny to have from someone who is member of like who is tied in with the the the, the priests and and the religious, uh, you know, the, the the church and everything. Like to be like, well, it's not great that there's this hierarchical class system, but you know and with the circles being the highest class and there are the priestly class as well like that's uh that's clearly um he's uh biting the hand that feeds him basically <laughs> in this which is kind of uh kind of interesting uh in that regard um so so let's go into how this works uh um, right 
one like uh, I knew about the this book going into it, but I didn't think about the idea that they can't see it. You know, they only see in one dimension. So, um, looking at uh, like a square, looking at a uh, a triangle versus looking at a circle, they both just look like a straight line. Right. Um, which is really interesting, and it describes all the ways that they can they can um, differentiate each other uh, first by voice, but that's not. Uh, doesn't always give you an idea of uh, the class differences. Uh, second is by feeling, and this is something the lower classes do. You know, they literally touch each other to see how many sides the other person has. Um, and um, the upper classes um, uh, go to school, and it basically seems to be all they're taught is uh, uh, sight recognition. So they there, there's some level of... Uh, uh, fog in uh, flatland and it's it's described as more um uh prevalent in the um south regions but in the north where the story takes place there's not a lot but there's some so with a lot of practice you can sort of start to see slightly you know uh inclined lines get slightly lighter that sort of thing right there's a gradation the further away the part yeah. of the thing gets from you and that's how you can detect how far away something is but this takes a lifetime of training in order to actually in the north actually figure out if some if what you're looking at is a triangle or a circle and that's extremely important to these people yeah yeah it's because of course the shape as as indicated in that opening uh your shape indicates your social status and your class really um to start with uh women are straight lines with no real thickness well a little bit of thickness because they're not they're still two-dimensional uh but they're very very thin uh yeah they're they're very thin rectangles but they are invisible from the front or virtually invisible right and to the point where uh they have to sort of have a ritualistic noise and movement so that people can recognize them and see them coming essentially yeah, a peace cry yes yeah and, and their movements indicate what class what class they're in because like they're they're all identical looking um you know they all women are are just a straight line but the ones from the circle class sort of sway in a certain way that um um i guess makes them look circular or that sort of thing yeah it's a little i mean it's supposed to be a bit silly obviously uh it does make you wonder how pregnancy works in this world because doesn't that make them no longer a straight line or what happens exactly when they're when they're not it's a, unclear yeah there, there's a few topics it it doesn't go into and it, it mentions some of them and says we we don't have time to touch on all of them so you know just just know that it's a thing just uh we're not going to explain it like uh how they eat and how they build things and you know yeah well and again you've got a victorian era priest writing this so and i mean think i think pregnancy would have been seen as a bit of a a bit of a taboo topic generally speaking so uh, he probably didn't want to get into that In at the all family way yeah exactly i mean uh, again going back to lewis carroll uh like if there's this, it's significant for instance you never see bishops in through the looking glass even though that's one of the one of the uh the chess pieces and it was uh most people have speculated he didn't want to get on the bad side of the church <laughs> so that's why he didn't write even even no matter how positive he he portrayed them that probably would have although in if you look at the alice in wonderland um uh drawing the uh, the uh 
the uh, illustrations by John Tenniel, uh, you can actually see bishops walking around in the background, uh, but they they don't feature in the story anyway. But this is this is more daring in that regard because it does directly take on the church, as we said. Um, but yeah, sorry, go on with the uh, the, the categories of the uh, yeah. Of the... So the the lowest class of of male are. Um, um, well, triangles, but uh, it differentiates between equilateral triangles, which are part of the sort of lower middle class. So that's triangles where all their sides are equal. Um, below that is... Um, um, isosceles. Iso- sorry, I, I blanked on the name. Isosceles triangles, which are uh, long, on, you know, long points. Um, and they're actually the soldier class mm-hmm. because they, they're pointy and they can pierce you. Or very low-ranking workmen and tradesmen are also yeah that as well yes yeah um, and but there's also the criminal class which are um, uh, irregular uh, triangles but also irregular shapes of all kinds they they really yeah. dislike having uh, sides that are different lengths yeah or angles uh, yeah yeah and they they say it's because it um, um, it uh, interrupts like it, it makes things confusing because again they they see in in just everything as a straight line so how do you navigate around things that aren't equal and stuff but they tie it into there's a distinct moral difference and um, irregular um, physicality uh, equates to irregular morals uh, to yeah. you know low morals and and it's sort of um, I don't know if it's intentional, but it does feel like sort of a comment on phrenology and other yes, things that were popular. Exactly what I was thinking of. Yeah, phrenology in the beginning of eugenics, essentially, because uh, and that was a big thing. Like as people started to learn about science and how it related to biology and 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 uh, you know and even and to behaviors. Of course, it went into some some bad territories and was just used to justify, as we all know. Um, you know, oh, they're lower people than than us. They're higher people than us. Uh, in this case, it's very class based, and yeah, again, it's this idea that like this is ma- mocking the absurdity of the idea that you know people of a lower class are like physically different than people of a higher class. Again, that's a that's a big thing in Victorian fiction. Usually, as a like a mo- usually commenting on it negatively, like um, the Time Machine by H.G. Uh, Wells is that as well. Like the Eloy and the Morlocks being the two classes having diverged uh, biologically so far, so much. Um, and this is, uh, like, this is basically th- taking that to its absurd extremes, basically, um, where you're absolutely, your class is your shape, is your destiny forever, essentially. Um, yeah, so uh, when you get higher, you know, uh, from square, which is uh, solidly middle class, they're, they're often lawyers and that sort of, and merchants and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, as you get yeah, an, an, equal, into- an equilateral triangle is like a, a tradesman, like a respected tradesman, uh, yeah. and then a square would be like the intellectual class. So yeah, like a uh, the the square who re- the square is the narrator. Interesting that they don't have names; they're just he's just the square. Uh, mm-hmm. But he's um, he's um, uh, a mathematician, as it happens. So like the intellectual class, like. I presume teachers, lawyers, clerks, things like that are, would be considered squares. Yeah. yeah, and his brother is is a lawyer, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, as you get higher uh, polygons, uh, as we uh, 
as I read in the the beginning, the um, it's generally that um, uh, you have your children have one more side than you your male children have one more side than what comes before, um, and the um, the more sides, uh, the closer to a circle you get, uh, the the more important you are in society, um, and. Uh, there's no actual true circles, but there's things that are, are close to circles because they have uh, small enough sides. And there's also a, uh, a, a thing in, in upper class uh, society where they will, uh, their newborn children uh, will actually hammer them out so they um, sort of break them, break their, you know, young, I guess, not quite hardened uh, sides and... Um, make sure they have more sides than they would have otherwise. Which, which is, and, and it, this actually, like, loses people. Like, a, a lot, like, a lot of deaths result from this, but they still do it because it's, it's really important for them to have as, as many sides as possible. Like, that does actually kind of reflect things on the upper class, like things the upper class would sort of, you know, the nobility would put, often put themselves through some pretty, bad stuff to to maintain that there are the I, the one that's popping to my mind is the fact that for a long time if you know or if you were in the upper class the nobility you wouldn't bathe uh because that meant that you were like a, you were doing work like a peasant if you had to bathe right um and what was that it was originally controversial for uh doctors to wash their hands to have yeah, to wash their hands exactly because uh a doctor is a gentleman and gentlemen's hands are always clean yeah exactly yeah that kind of thing but also just um you that know, might the, be apocryphal, but yeah. Well, no, no, no. It's absolutely true. Like that is the guy who developed. Uh, I forget his name. Sam Semi Semmel Semmelweis. I think his name was. Uh, he he developed the germ. Or uh, sorry, he, he. I don't think he developed the germ theory, but he understood that you know washing your hands between surgeries and like dissecting a corpse and then going to deliver a baby uh, would be you know if you washed your hands it would radically increase the health of the people you were handling and touching and that was absolutely true and he was mocked and driven from medical society for doing so because he was uh, making the doctors feel like they had to wash themselves and that was a big taboo so no it was absolutely true and um like that just shows like the whole like the, the the idea that the upper classes think of themselves as being sort of above reproach and uh, holding themselves a certain way that they don't they would never have to do the things that a a lower class person would have to do like that is that was huge in european especially victorian society in the 19th and early 20th centuries so yeah like again that's the kind of thing they're they're talking about here i don't know if they would like um do things to their children the way this is suggesting but like uh it, it's definitely reflective of that kind of thing like you you teach your kids to hold yourselves a certain way and don't don't scamper don't you know don't climb a tree because you're being foolish you're you're born to be noble you know that kind of thing right yeah and in this case it's all about sight recognition because the lower classes touch each other uh to to tell it but we 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 uh, develop our sight, and actually, if you fail your your final exams in the sight recognition thing, you're actually ostracized from from high society. Um, and the the narrator explains that most of the rebellions are actually led by uh, uh, ostracized members of upper classes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
it's uh he like he does get into the fact that they do have rebellions and revolutions and things um and like so it's not like that in and of itself suggests that maybe their viewpoint on the world is actually flawed maybe there's actually uh you know people who do uh maybe maybe it's not as simple as they as he's portraying it in like maybe it's a slightly unreliable narrator in that regard uh, that's a little sophisticated for an 1884 story that wasn't like a common uh, idea but I think he's trying to evoke that, like he, like he clearly doesn't agree with the idea that your, you know, your birth and your shape is your destiny or whatever. So, like that's kind of how he's complicating it and problematizing it. The fact that there are yeah. revolutions. Uh, one of the movie versions I, I watched as research for this actually portrays Flatland as like a dystopia, like a, because it is, but yeah. like they they play into the dystopian aspects of it. Yeah. It is. It is definitely meant to be. I mean, it's Swiftian, basically. It's meant. Yeah. It's 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 portraying these negative societies that are absurd uh, reflections of our own, basically. Um, and uh, like as I say, like like they, it really gets uh, horrific when you see it, when they talk about how irregulars and and the squares like being a liberal-minded guy. I don't think all irregulars should be put to death. They should just be locked away for their entire life, you know, kind of thing. Like, yeah. they, you know, it's 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 like that's obviously again meant to be kind of ridiculous that he thinks that. Um, but uh, anyway, it's it's uh, and yeah, as you you go up the the ladder of uh, of class, it uh, it becomes. Um, you become more and more of a detailed figure. And it's, it's interesting because he's like, he's making these satirical points, but he's clearly also very interested in the mechanics of how it would work and the way the world would, this world would work. Like he's not bending everything about how this world would work to his class metaphor or his commentary. He's just going like, Oh yeah, but okay. But how would you see in a two dimensional world? Cause everything would look like a line and you know, like, like he's actively yeah. trying to think it out, which is kind of interesting and very like, that's very much a, a thing that ties into science fiction world building essentially, which I think is interesting. Um, like it's, it, that, that's, that's actually a thing about science fiction that I think we need to reckon with a little more and don't always reckon with, we always go, Oh, it's a metaphor. And therefore this is this. And that is that. But like, once you've created a science fiction world or a fantastical world, you're, it's going to take on a life of its own and you're going to construct the rules as it were of this world so that they function. Maybe they, maybe it would never function in reality, but it functions with its own internal logic. And you can get away from like directly doing uh, metaphors that's that's actually something i always appreciate in sci-fi that when you have a story that isn't just like oh it's a metaphor for this and it's a straight one-to-one allegory it's animal farm you know where everything is very clearly a metaphor for this one thing that i'm trying to get across um but yeah i i'm i'm of two minds of this because uh, i i agree with you on one hand i do like when you when you think out, out these things and problematize it them a little bit like it like this would work differently in this scenario, you know, that sort of thing. On the other hand, people complaining, like, again, I, I go to this, you know, cinema sins watching Snowpiercer and just spending the whole time explain er, complaining that the train wouldn't work in real life, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, like, yeah. Sort of ignoring the metaphor entirely for a completely literal reading of it that just mm-hmm. misses every, like, that's not what the movie's about, guys. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I mean, I agree, but I also think that, like, when you start to think about the world and make it live on its own, 
other metaphors can suggest itself. So purely from a literary perspective, I think it's beneficial to consider that kind of thing and like follow those tangents. A lot of, you know, with, with uh, comic books and science fiction stories, um, you know, they, they don't have this one firm metaphor necessarily like maybe it'll be a metaphor for one thing in one episode or one issue but then it'll be a metaphor for some if it's being well written it'll be a metaphor for something else in another issue right so it's not like it's like the x-men yeah or yeah right like the x-men i mean even the x-men it's like the narrowness of yeah it's about prejudice and people confronting those are different but they don't they aren't obvious stand-ins for any one particular no, that, that's what i story. mean like yeah yeah like um uh, uh, this is going into X-Men stuff. The, the idea that they started out as a civil rights metaphor is wrong, but they, they did become that like by the second or third year of their existence. <laughs> right. um, but um, yeah, it was, it was never a straight one-to-one with like, this is a racial group. This is sexuality. Right. Cause it doesn't quite line up with any of those specifically, but there it's applicable to a number of different. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it creates so, sometimes, the, yeah. Sometimes zooming out on the issue, uh, if that makes sense, uh, makes it more accessible to a wider um, mm-hmm. number of uh, interpretations. And it, I mean, it creates issues when people are like, "Yeah, well, they are these cool, sexy teens with superpowers." Um, you know, is that like that? That doesn't jive with any kind of marginalized group in a way, and and it creates the problem of like, well, it's not weird to be angry about someone who can you know, to be a fearful of someone who can blow your head up with their mind, you know, that's not the same as <laughs> hating someone from a marginalized group, right? Like, it's like, th- 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 that's another example of how the metaphor can, like, go off in another direction, and it's it's interesting to explore. And um, so I think I think in the in the broader sense, it's beneficial. I mean, so you're right. This has been um, yeah. uh, Adam and Philip Explain the yes, X-Men man, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, but I think it's a useful thing to talk about because, like I say, you can very much see Abbott when he's writing Flatland kind of go off in – in like like oh this is actually a really cool thing to think about like he's he's not he he he's doing both a literary metaphor and commentary but also running off in his own direction about how cool it would be to consider flatland and that from what i understand is kind of what made the book return like it wasn't hugely popular in its time i don't think um it it like it kind of caught people's attention as a as a I almost want to say a fluke, like it was kind a of novelty. Like, oh, yeah, a novelty, a novelty. Yes, and uh, yeah, like it, it, people remembered it. But then it sounds like people like uh, physics in the early 20th century started to look at it, and so yeah, this is actually a useful tool to think about how multiple dimensions function. Um, so as a result, you know, it that kind of it, as you say, it became a bit of a nerd mainstay that people started calling back to. Um, I think I heard that Albert Einstein referenced it at one point. Um, I think the the people who worked on the the Manhattan Projects uh, talked about it a bit. The Manhattan Project, um, and yeah, um, like yeah, like uh, to the point where it got referenced on the Big Bang Theory. Like it's not like a super obscure thing. <laughs> oh, okay, that's I didn't know they. I'm that's actually I gotta say, like my from what I've seen of the Big Bang Theory, they go for pretty low hanging fruit in terms of uh, yeah, nerd that's stuff. What I mean, but yeah, um, but that's uh, but they, but I didn't think this was like I wouldn't have considered this low hanging fruit. This is a little bit of a deep cut, and it is something that nerds genu- genuinely like. So I mean, yeah, good on them. It had, I, guess. Um, I think the the joke. Uh, sorry, it's been been a while since I saw this scene, but I think the the joke was uh, Sheldon was. Uh, 
uh, talking about the book, and he, you know, he mentioned it by name, and he was talking about uh, all the cool things, and then somebody said, yeah, and it's a uh, satire of Victorian class, the Victorian class system, and Sheldon said, it is? <laughs> yeah. That's kind of funny, like, <laughs> completely it, missing the point. Yeah. Okay, that makes, that makes Big Bang Theory sound a lot more astute than I would have given it credit for. I no, mean... Understanding the nerds don't get this kind of thing sometimes, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, yeah, I, I like... Everything has a good joke occasionally. I don't know. Yeah. Well, maybe this is a this could be a case of like, uh, hey, uh, you know, somebody wrote for the show for a bit that actually knew what they were talking about. You know, <laughs> yeah. Um, it also got um, uh, covered on um, uh, or mentioned on the Orville. They did an episode where they came across a mm-hmm. two dimensional civilization. I think. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and they they actually mentioned Flatland by name and talked about it briefly. Um, uh, Futurama did an episode which I, I rewatched uh, today um, uh, in the seventh season. Though it was it was a pretty good episode. It was mostly a Fast and Furious parody. Um, yeah. Um, uh, where they got uh, crushed and where the the crew got crushed into the, into a two dimensional world. Uh, the issue there was that um, uh, they couldn't uh, eat because uh, the way they're they're digestive system work they'd it would have to bisect them in two so they couldn't actually um uh, get any food into their mouths (laughs) so that's why they had to escape yeah and also um it it did a thing where they talked about three dimensions and the um um uh two-dimensional king said i i don't understand that that's crazy get them (laughs) you know that sort of thing (laughs) yeah it's well that's that that is yeah they do that in flatland like he talks about how uh, you know the sphere because the in as in as much as there's a plot to this story, it's uh, the the key the 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 square is met uh, encounters a sphere from Spaceland who starts trying to explain to him that there's a third dimension, and he talks about how like your interior is open to me, but I'm I'm enclosed in that dimension because I'm you know I'm I'm constrained on all sides just as you're constrained by lines, I'm constrained by planes. Um, and uh and but whereas for you that's like the open that's your interiors but for me i just have a side that contains everything and and he does mention that how a fourth dimensional entity would logically have to have um a uh be constrained on all sides by a cube right or by a similar three-dimensional shape on multiple dimensions of its fourth dimension um my understanding is that we like I don't know if it's technically true that the fourth dimension is time, but that's the most useful way to understand the potential fourth dimension, which we can't really grasp in our heads because we're three-dimensional. But, like, it's best to think of it as, like, think of how, like, you're born and you're a, well, you're a zygote, and then you're a fetus, and then you're a baby, and then you get bigger and bigger, and then you smaller. And uh, actually, Robert A. Heinlein wrote a story where he talked about uh, the length of people's one of his earliest stories, the length of people's lives, and a scientist was able to predict when people would die because he could sort of see in four dimensions. He found a machine that could see in four dimensions and see this giant pink worm traveling through four dimensions. That's what a human is <laughs> up until it meets its end. He could see where the end was coming, so therefore he could predict when you were going to die, basically. Um, but like, yeah, that's that's uh, it's not an easy concept to grasp obviously but that's kind of how you would think of the fourth dimension and then theoretically fifth sixth higher dimensions i, I as yeah, i there's actually a bit uh, cuz um the sphere takes um 
the square into into Spaceland briefly to to view his own world, and you know it, it blows his mind and stuff. But when he comes back, he slowly loses the ability to explain or even really understand what he saw, and he, he keeps saying, there, "There's another direction, you know, not northward, but upward, which is." Upward, you know, upward. <laughs> yeah, right. You mean northward. No, upward. It's a different dimension that you don't yeah, experience. But yeah, but even to himself, he becomes hesitant and, and confused because he can't really quite grasp it anymore, even though he saw it. Yeah. Yeah, one of the jokes is that the sphere, uh, like himself trying to explain it, is not actually that sophisticated mentally like the square is actually more sophisticated mentally by virtue of like having exposed to three dimensions as you said when he starts saying to the sphere is like well what about the fourth dimension the sphere is like don't be silly there's no such thing as a fourth dimension and and it's like it, it again that sort of goes into the theme of like it you know we're, we're we're limiting them we're putting this physical limit on them and we assume that limits their reality and their imagination and their mind but the square is actually able to surpass the sphere in that sense. Being three-dimensional doesn't make the sphere smarter and, and more open-minded in some ways. He just has access to this third dimension, which he uses to, like... The, he's very smug, the sphere, right? Like, he yes. kind of goes in and like, oh, you would never understand this third dimension. Woo! You know? Like, yeah, c- c- coming in and out, like, disappearing and entering different rooms and stuff because he can go up. Yeah. Um, uh, though the square is also pretty smug to the uh, to the king of Lineland as well. Yeah, that that again, that's the point. It's sort of like, yeah. oh, you're just you're coming from a perspective where you were given this essentially just by an accident of your birth, and we're talking about the physical laws of the universe instead of like class. But that's obviously what's being implied here, right? Um, yeah. So, like, that's actually well done as far as that goes. Like, that's that's what he's... Because it's very much a, here's... This will make you think, hey, ooh, I'll blow your mind with this idea. Like, but not, but not in a negative way. Like, it's Abbott is t- trying to make you think about this kind of stuff, basically, which yeah, is really it, interesting. It actually does. Like, yeah. uh, like I said, you know, going in, I, I didn't really think. Yeah, they just see everything as a line equally. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Again, Lines being a, of different lengths, yeah. Yeah, him being a mathematician was, like, it's very clearly him trying to... And there's also the fact that um, uh, the Square's uh, child, who is a Pentagon, of course, comes to him and says, well, shouldn't there be... A, he basically nudges around the idea that there should be a third dimension. And the sphere and the Square kind of, like, laughs at him and says, oh, that's... Don't be silly. Ha, ha, ha. There's no such thing. Um, and tries to get him off that idea. But it's the way that kids think about these things and question it in ways that adults don't want to question and don't want to shake up their worldview once it's once it's set um that com- turn comes around and 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 affects him in that way oh uh there's also another uh, aspect of the uh, again like this doesn't correspond directly to anything i don't think but the the chromatist thing right the color uh, the color well a color revolution <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah um this is uh, in the in the distant past in the novel, but um, uh, there was a, a, a guy. I think it. What was it again? Chroma something. <laughs> oh, I, I don't remember what it's called. No. It came up with the idea of of color basically and painting sides so that say um, uh, a circle would be have have half of the circle red and the other half green, um, so you could tell which way it's coming and going and stuff. 
and you could differentiate um, um, yeah, uh, squares and things immediately just by their color because they, they didn't have color naturally. Um, and uh, this was um, uh, a sort of class leveler for, for a number of reasons, potentially. Um, and one of them being that, um, well, the, the sight recognition would, would atrophy in, in the upper classes. Um, but also, uh, you know, a, a square could, or a triangle or anything, could paint themselves in a certain way so it looked like they had more sides than they had. Right, yeah. Um, uh, and uh, so, somebody uh, tried to get away with a crime doing that, so the whole thing was, was banished, and you're, you're not allowed, you're barely allowed to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it's it's like, it's... I'm not, yeah, again, I'm not sure what that's supposed to stand in for, as you say, but it, there's definitely a, a reflection of, like, something comes along and makes society think think differently for a while, and then it, it gets banned. <laughs> it gets, yeah, they stomp I, down on it as hard as they can. Yeah, I, I think the specific thing isn't any anything in particular, but it is thinking about, again, how two-dimensional beings would perceive things. Yeah, yeah. Um, and sort of just, I, again, a, a lot of this book is just think thinking through the metaphor yeah yeah exactly it's um it, it's but it, you know it just the broader idea of you know societal change creates this kind of chaos is is probably the point more than anything uh, yeah. but like and literally like as he says that makes their lives very dreary because there's no such thing as color and or at least not on people are not allowed to have color people people being shape they're, it's funny because he does refer to themselves as humans, even though they're they're shapes. You know, <laughs> like I guess it's just uh, you know they're that's what humans are in in Flatland, essentially. Um, uh, yeah, it might might also just be because uh, I, I recall in the the uh, John Carter books they refer to Tharks as humans occasionally, so it's just like human intelligence, I guess, is the mm-hmm, idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So uh, there, there have been a, a few adaptations of this over the years, uh, some easier to find than others. Uh, there was a animated short, it's about 11 minutes long, uh, available on YouTube, I think I found it on YouTube, um, called uh, uh, Just Flatland from 1965, uh, directed by Eric Martin. And it's basically just an animated thing, you know, squares moving around. Yeah. They're a little more uh, bouncy than, than I imagine, you know. Right. They're they're more rigid in the in the book, uh, but it, it it gets the I, I gets the idea across fairly well. Um, uh, there's one I wasn't able to find an Italian short film called Flatlandia. Um, then for some reason in 2007 there's two different versions that were <laughs> made. Yeah. Um, uh, one a uh, one called uh, Flatland the movie and another called Flatland the film. Uh, two animated movies that are completely like unrelated okay. <laughs> other than being based on yeah. the same thing yeah i did see the ads for that but it's or i did see that uh, that mentioned are they both short films or are they one feature? of them short film the other one's a feature the short film i cannot find anywhere for a reasonable price um it's only 34 minutes and i'm not going to pay like you know full price for that i just i don't feel like doing that no. uh though the short film does have like actual celebrity voices in it it's got Kristen bell and uh um from uh, veronica mars and the good place uh and uh, uh 
yeah, who, who else was in? Yeah, Tony Hale from Arrested uh, Development and Veep. Mm. Uh, yeah, uh, Joe Estevez. <laughs> Martin Sheen's in it. Jeez. Uh, Michael York. Huh. Interesting. Okay, they... Well, I mean, as you say, it's kind of seen as something of a uh, notable um, story that's like hung around. So people kind of felt, you know, it has a certain literary merit to it, you know? Um, yeah, and there's a sequel called Sphereland that, again, I, I, seems to be based on a, uh, another book that somebody else wrote, uh, that's, uh, like a sequel to Flatland written in the 50s, um, 1950s. But, uh, the, the version, the, the, the feature length one I saw is, uh, 90 minutes, it's an animated movie, uh, computer animated, um, uh, I, I was wondering how they turn this into a fully, you know, a feature-length movie, because there's not much plot to the book. Um, but they, they actually do a, a pretty good job on that front. Um, they uh, they emphasize the, the dystopian nature and that there's revolutions brewing. They have the chromatist thing happening at the time that the story's taking place. Um, and then when the uh, the sphere brings up the square into, uh, into Spaceland, Spaceland's got its own issues going on with mm-hmm. wars and stuff and um and uh the uh the leaders claiming heresy for the square saying that there would be higher dimensions than even them so yeah right right yeah um uh it, it was uh the animation's crude it, it's sort of like sub reboot you know um well it almost has to be because like you can't i don't see how you can make them really detailed and complex i would almost you, you, this is uh cgi you're talking about right yeah i i, I mean Actually, the CGI looks good with the Flatland stuff. The Spaceland stuff looks a little wonky. The colors yeah. are garish, and uh, yeah, it's it's like that old timey 3D where it's like not even quite like a circle's not even round. It's like slightly squared off. Uh, oh, I see. Huh? Like it's it it's obviously made old you know, timey prob- 3D. <laughs> like nineties era 3D. Yeah, like, I know. You know, I know. Like yeah. not. It's just like a they, funny they thing to have... think about the fact that now there's old timey CGI. We can say yeah. that it's not ridiculous. Those made in 2007, so like you know, Finding Nemo was mm-hmm. out at this time, I think. Um, but um, it obviously made on a budget, probably by not a lot of people. But uh, I, I think they did a pretty good job with it. I did like the way the Flatlanders looked because um, they weren't just like a square or a triangle. You saw their insides, like you saw their. They they looked like. Um, uh, like how you look at a cell in a in a microscope, like a bacteria, um, you know, with all the little organelles inside of them, mm. and you see things moving around. And gross. Uh, they have, <laughs> I mean, in a simplified way, like yeah. yeah. And they they have uh, their outsides have like uh, a philia, like feelers, uh, all around them. So that explains how they can feel things. Mm-hmm. Um, I, oh, like that, cilia, of... so like cilia then. So Sorry, they're almost... I said feel yeah. No, no, but like so that 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 and that's the thing you you I do kind of think of when I hear that is like a microscopic entity under a slide, which are not two dimensional. They're only quote two dimensional because we put them on a slide and you know flatten it basically. Uh, but like yeah, that's that's how that's the closest thing to what we would imagine it being in our world is like a microscopic looking through a microscope basically little protozoa and amoebas and things yeah so i thought it was pretty clever you know using that for their visuals though the uh the circles did look like pac-man because they, <laughs> they had mouths that opened and closed and, yeah. <laughs> nice yeah uh, 
So it just looked like a, a bunch of Pac-Men uh, uh, ruling the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, it, it did have uh, an annoying thing where they uh, cut to, to titles a lot to to explain things. Like just uh, words on the screen just to say uh, things that they they probably didn't need to explain. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's, that's sort of, it's, it's a bit of an, uh, explainy book. So that makes a certain event. Like that's being true to the book, the book in some ways. I yeah. Would say. But, uh, yeah. but at the same time, just, um, I, I don't know, like, um, this is what the, uh, sorry, I can't remember what they called the, uh, the part where they hammered out extra sides into the children, but, um, this is that, uh, it's exactly as bad as it sounds. <laughs> That sort of thing <laughs> came up on the screen a bunch, um, or <laughs> okay. um, like I, I don't know. One of them uh, early on was um, uh, try not to think too much about how flatlanders um, see each other; you'll get a headache. Yeah, <laughs> that sort of thing. Hmm. Um, well, you know, that's. Uh, I mean, I guess if they're not going to explain that aspect of it, I. I uh... No, no, just try try not to. You know. <laughs> yeah. It's difficult. I mean, that's the yeah. whole point. It's to make you think in ways, think diagonally, like a yeah. perpendicular to how you usually think. Like that's the whole also point the, of the, the movie's probably not. It's a cartoon, but probably not suitable for children. There is, it is somehow very bloody, because mm. all the the wars that they show, you know, triangles piercing people and like fluids come out. Mm. Uh, it's, yeah. it's weird uh, that they would do that, but you know, it, it was it, it was. Uh, uh, not bad. Not not a bad movie. Hmm. All right. Well, I'll I'll see if I can check it out. But uh, yeah, uh, I think the 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 director of it uploaded on on YouTube, so that's why I was able to watch that one. Hmm. Very cool. But yeah, so I, I one like I did want to just mention briefly um, that it like it is interesting that with these kind of stories, like again, this is something we talked about in the episode where we. Talk. We did a few short stories, and we talked about, um, uh, for instance, we looked at the Sentinel, and uh, but also like uh, Voltaire, uh, and and uh, and things. That wasn't the same episode, was it? That was a different one, I think. Uh, the 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 the. Uh, the... Uh, no, I th- I think we discussed a bunch of space ones in the same in the mm. same one. So we did Voltaire and uh, uh, Weinbaum's Mars and yeah. Sentinel in one episode, I think. Yeah. Oh, and. Uh, that one with uh, set on Uranus, where the where the balloon goes to Uranus. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it, and it showed again that that episode we kind of showed how there was this evolution of science fiction where it was primarily this sort of satirical commentary. That was kind of the the main purpose of science fiction for a long time. And then sometime around, I mean, it got pulpier. Uh, maybe around the time of H.G. Wells, it started to be a little bit more serious about like world building and actually trying to present a scenario or a world that was plausible and this feels like it's almost like on the cusp of that because it's satirical it's commentary but he's then trying to take it a little seriously and and as i say flesh it out like a real world um and you know that that's how science fiction was mostly approached in the 20th century uh you didn't have that sort of what if the world where people were they they wore hats on their hands and hamburgers eat people you know like that that's the kind of thing you'd see in the 19th century and older uh in the 20th century you'd see more like let's try to seriously conceive of this world so this is a this is kind of an interesting cusp for that in my opinion yeah yeah oh uh 
something I think we would be remiss to uh, not bring up. It is forward thinking on on class issues and stuff. It is still pretty sexist. Uh, the, I mean, uh, it's it's hard to say how much of this is the the author's own view on women and how much of it again world building, because the women are are so small. They're described by the narrators as having you know very small brains or very small thinking capacity. Yeah. Um, so they like their memories are really short. Uh, they they uh, tend to fly off the handle really uh, quickly. Um, though because they're like straight lines and basically needles, they can pierce uh, people. So women have been known to go off the handle and just kill a whole room full of men. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's like that's definitely. And apparently he was Abbott was somewhat criticized at the time. Uh, and even wrote like the introduction I had uh, was yeah, like to a later too. edition, yeah. yeah. And he talks about that, but it's like it, it does sound like no, I'm trying to write what the people of Flatland think, not and how it's viewed in Flatland, and you know, like it, uh, taking this absurdist reality seriously. Obviously, it is an absurd reality, and I guess you run into the problem of like, well, the women in Flatland are are brainless or don't have much of a brain uh because uh like but the whole point is to create this absurd reality that reflects you know victorian prejudices essentially and then poke a hole in it but that means he is confirming it in a way by saying yes this is the world where this happened i i think it's pretty clear he doesn't think women are brainless or whatever it's like it's it's the absurdity of this world being that way and again he 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 kind of pokes holes in it and deconstructs it in a number of different ways throughout the story because he keeps like like i say the fact that there are revolutions and that there are you know irregularities and things like that like the the irregularity thing almost points to the idea that no maybe things aren't as clear-cut as everyone assumes they are um but like of course they've got this neat little structured view of the world i think that was i think that was the intention maybe i'm being too generous but yeah, i yeah it's know. it's hard to stay on the the sex issue i think it's definitely there on the class issue and the yeah. the irregularity thing cuz like there there it, it actually does mention there's like a board uh for you know i what was it called uh, i think i mentioned in the intro um the uh, uh, sanitary and social board, which actually will measure your sides to make sure they're all even right. enough. Yeah, yeah. But but the the thing about I, I do think it's intentional with them. Like I think it's the sense of a, a Victorian era guy trying to be liberal about it, but like still being a Victorian era guy. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think that's what we're seeing there. It was kind of like you know he was trying to be anti-sexist and comment on the absurdity of it without necessarily reflecting on how he was potentially you know not be making it sound worse than he intended i think but i i think he had good intentions in writing that i don't think he like yeah 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 yeah. and and like i I say he was more um unexamined um prejudices like we all have you know what i don't even think it's unexamined prejudice i think he just he in conveying it, he garbled it a little bit because he was criticized at the time. Like that's the whole point. Like he was criticized for being misogynist in 1884. So obviously, it's like it's not like the idea that well, women are human and can think like a normal person was not a mind melting idea to the Victorians as much as we you know paradise it. It's just that was that that was the you know the stratum of society. That was how it functioned. But like, of course, there were lots of people commenting on it and and 
critiquing it, and that's what the book is supposed to do. I just he maybe didn't handle it as well as he could. I think that I think it, I think it's more in terms of how it was realized that was a problem, not. I mean, I'd examine prejudices too, probably, but like more, more the fact that he he rendered his metaphor in a weird way, just as like as we mentioned, the X Men can sometimes be problematic as a metaphor, even though it's well intentioned. It's the same kind of thing, right? Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. We didn't mention that the book takes place in the Flatlands year two thousand. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. But yeah, so le- leave that in so, as I go into here because that'll okay. All right, <laughs> explain that. Well, the millennium is approaching, and we two-dimensional shapes must leave you all in Spaceland. We've been Holy Circle Philip Rice and Irregular Triangle and member of the criminal class Adam Prosser. Jack Furick, the King of Lineland, sang our theme music from both his front and back mouths. And the Mystic Sphere Alex Ross descended to our plane to produce and provide hosting for our podcast. Just a reminder that we both have a Patreon, which helps pay for hosting costs and spread the gospel of Spaceland. If you subscribe to either of us, you can listen to this podcast early every time, as well as bonus material, cut footage, illustrations, and comics, and possibly a lengthening of your third side. Just go to Patreon and search for Philip Rice, one L, or Adam Prosser, two S's, or what-mad-universe.pinecast.co for the links. You can also follow us on Twitter at WMUPodcast, or Prankster36 for Adam, or Spear Havoc A for me, that's Spear Havoc with an F. That I, I'll... I explained that in a previous episode. Anyway, uh, we also want to thank our new sponsors at the Tokyo Beat Podcast Network. So until next time, keep in shape and stay regular.